You're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about classic albums and decide if they deserve that distinction. And we also talk about some unsung classics in the hopes of bringing them to a new audience. And at the end of it all, we let you decide if we are right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. Song podcast on last week's episode, we spoke about the Twilight Sad's debut album, 14 Autumns and 15 Winters. It was definitely our closest vote yet. For most of the week, it was sitting about 50 50, and we thought that we may have to make some kind of executive decision because it was tied. But a couple of people have came in and voted, and they have swung the vote towards the yes column. So, Twilight Sad, the fans, your fans and fans of this podcast have voted that 14 autumns and 15 winters as your definitive statement is in their eyes your best record and we are very happy to welcome it into your discography. On this episode we're taking a left turn, we're going a bit weird, we're going to be talking about Vespertine by Bjork, an album which I think we all found to be very very interesting indeed, enjoy. Mark Fraser and I'm joined by the one man Bjork fan club and his best friend <laughs> uh, Across from me is uh, he doesn't like music from Iceland he loves music from farm foods it's Chris Cusack Oh my god <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke that will not translate um, and talking of translation I I do is, is, is Icelandic an entirely distinct language? Yes it's one of the hardest languages to learn in the world it, right, so it's it's entirely distinct. It's not in any way traceably derivative from, say, Danish. No, not at all. Because Greenland's part of Denmark, right? Yeah, my wee sister yeah. lives in Denmark and she's like on a Danish and she says, and her Danish boyfriend says Icelandic. It's a far, far different language. Fantastic. Another ethnic slur. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there you go. At least I'm, I'm putting out there, I'm being honest. I'm not, uh, you know, warts and all. Yep, this is the Unsung Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Iceland. Great one, guys. Thanks, Iceland. <laughs> See you later. Only took us 19 episodes to, <laughs> to get pulled off iTunes. Right, so in, in that case, can we just get us really straight out straight out the, the gates here? Bjork's full name, Bjork. Whoa, 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 Goodsman's whoa, whoa, daughter. Whoa, 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 we didn't introduce Weaver. I did. He didn't. I, I don't, it doesn't matter. He oh, started, well, he started okay, and he, he, he Across from me uh-huh. is David Weaver. Oh, that's me. <laughs> wearing the first hat he ever owned it's true that stayed with him and it's a bright purple and when coupled with his maroon t-shirt looks a little bit like a boner uh, it's not my first hat as in like I've had this for years it's my first hat I bought it a month ago I just never owned a hat before because I've got such a big fucking head hats just make me look ill you've been looking for that I look XXX like a, whenever I wear a woolly hat I look like an outpatient but uh, <laughs> I finally found one that fits and I'm like 
holy shit, there's so much warmth here. I've been losing the heat all the time through my Top heat. Your head, yeah. And now I'm I'm a hat convert here. So uh, guys, hats. Hats. Well into them. <laughs> Do you know who else likes hats? Uh who's that? Bjork. Bjork. We're Bjork talking about hats. Bjork. Bjork Goodsman's daughter. <laughs> So, Chris, you kept asking me if we could do Bjork or if we could do this record. Why Why did you keep asking I'm me? I'm terrified about doing Bjork, right? Because Bjork has a demonstrably maniacal fan base <laughs> who even try to kill her, right? So uh-huh. she has, uh, she inspires a level of fanaticism that I don't think many musicians do. And I am woefully ill-equipped to tackle this subject. So I thought, fuck it, let's do it. Commercial yeah. suicide. No, but not? I think what we can do is come at it from like our normal slightly ill-educated but well-meaning music fans guys (laughs) you know like i fucking love bjork but i'm not like a bjork super fan i'm not like evangelical about her you're carrying the can today though yeah that's fine you're clearly but i'm not learned i've never seen her live uh because she doesn't really do live right now um, so background on bjork everybody bjork (laughs) released an album when she was 11 uh, she did indeed, yeah. She uh, or someone released an album with Bjork on it when she was eleven, and she sang at a high school talent competition. Someone sent the tape to a radio station. The radio station mm-hmm. played it. She got contacted. They signed her, and the album's fucking terrible. It's mad as fuck. It yeah, just she's like Beatles covers and oh, mad shit going on. So bizarre. Before sugar cubes. Oh yeah, was, oh, she, was lit- she was literally eleven. She was eleven. Years old. She was <laughs> it was, eleven. It was, was nineteen seventy nine. <laughs> Fuck yeah, seventy seven. Seventy seven. Sorry, yeah. you're right. Absolutely. Because by nineteen seventy nine, she'd started a punk band. Yeah, <laughs> called this is what happens Snot. in Iceland. <laughs> by nineteen eighty, she started a jazz fusion band called Exodus. And by nineteen eighty two, she started a group called Tappy Tikaras, which apparently translates to Cork the bitch's ass. <laughs> See, by the age of 16, she'd already gone through the entire, what most musicians do in their entire career. So, you know. Holy shit. My notes, I mean, I was just like giggling. <laughs> That's gig- it. Giggling like crazy. I, was, I thought they were making it up. I was like, right, someone. But yeah, so Bjork, her page. She then, they then got picked up. Uh, she'd already the, had a kid by 1986. Sugar Cubes then got picked up. When were up you guys born? 1986. 1986 for Dave? Yeah. 85. So she could be my mom. Is she Are you son of Bjork? I don't know, I'm adopted, Bjork's, so maybe she is. Bjork, son of Bjork. But, uh, <laughs> no, um, she then so, yeah, gained, be, like, sort of indie legitimacy through the Sugar Cubes. So her first release was 1986, and the Sugar Cubes' first release was 1986. Yeah, pretty much official. I mean, we could all say we had an album in when we were 11, but I we was more talking really. about the baby. Oh, her release... Oh, for fuck's sake. Oh, that that's <laughs> even worse than my farm food joke. <laughs> um... So I should be you know, picked up, toured America, UK, got like, you know, fairly decent success. Yeah, she played to David Bowie. Uh-huh. Not Bowie. David Bowie and Iggy Pop in 1988 in New York. She went on a U2 tour. Saturday Night Live as well. U2 tour? Yeah, Zuropa. That was one with the lemon, wasn't it? Was that the one with the the, the characters on stage? They played the fly. It was like early 90s, like U2 at their fucking hugest and most ridiculous. So when The Simpsons 
did a thing about yeah. as well when Homer was yeah, so uh, they, garbage like, man. She she was opening that when she was you know in her twenties. Yeah, so it's like ninety two. Their third album. Yeah, and um, their second album apparently kind of bombed. The first album was really well received. I think Melody mm. Maker made it their like their album of the year. Yeah, or that no Melody Maker made the single of it single of the week, but it was well received overall. So even if the second album sort of tanked. disappeared, she would have a fairly decent body of work. Um, and they sacked it in 92 and that yeah. was the Sugar Cubes and they were done and it was like alright what's going to happen to that mad wee woman now yeah. and she's retreated to go and start this huge empire of like quasi surrealist electro pop experimental madness yeah but what so what's interesting is this where this record comes in her discography and her her oeuvre oeuvre <laughs> I love that because um, debut which is really her debut as an artist yep um, in 93 uh, going back and listening to it it's actually it's a really good record but it's like a sort of indie pop it's very 90s listening to it it's quite soundtracky and I think a lot of tracks like Venus is a Boy and stuff like that were used in emotional 90s films Yeah, I mean, debut and post are the, and then, sort of semi-conventional albums. Yeah, by, and by post is the one that cemented her place. It's the one that went platinum in America and in the UK. And it's the one with Also oh Quiet. Army of Me. Army of Me, which is like an absolute fucking club banger. That's a, yeah. I remember hearing that on a best of cassette it's that I had. It's quite industrial. Yeah, 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 yeah. It totally is. Really, really good. But I mean, she w- she worked with really interesting producers. She well, started is, off doing that. It's interesting because for debut and for post, she worked with Nelly Hooper mm. um, in London, and that seemed to be like a pretty big influence on her. I have to put my cards on the table. I, I I have time for Bjork. I am yeah probably in first year of Bjork, if yeah. you will, in terms of my understanding of the woman and her work. But it does seem like producers are a big part of her music, and that is not to undermine her or belittle her role. She's a clearly a talented writer, but she seems. But to, she's also always a producer. She just knows who to. Yeah, get I think help she her. seems to be very uh, astute at getting people in who are doing who are who are working at the forefront of the scene yeah. at that time. So much like that, somebody like Kanye West is as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I think she seems a little bit less prone to plagiarism. Well, <laughs> I mean, she doesn't come from that sort of hip hop sampling background that Kanye does. Yeah, sampling um, as in like. Same way you sample food if you put it in your pocket and don't pay for it. Um, but <laughs> I, she like, has Arca on her latest record. And yeah, he, well, Arca's on the last two records, and Arca's like very zeitgeisty right yeah. now in terms of electronic music. And and, and even for post in the like mid nineties, she had tricky. She had yeah. how you be going like the fellow Glaswegian. And, yep. I might add. Yeah, Hacks and Cloak was on the record. The one not that not on the latest yeah. one, but long before that. That's yeah. right, Hacks and Cloak, and who's fucking great, great producer. <laughs> yeah, and again, extremely zeitgeisty. Yeah. yeah, and so but. So then going back to Zeitgeist, she is always sort of capturing the Zeitgeist, be it the sort of hipster Zeitgeist or the mainstream Zeitgeist as it was more in the 90s. And Post was the thing that like really cemented her. You think of Bjork now and she's like this, like the alternative music queen. Yeah. In the 90s, she was on top of the pop. She was platinum. She was a pop star, mm-hmm. you know, up there with fucking Madonna or, the, you know, the biggest pop acts in the world. But my, my mum bought Oh So Quiet, the single. I was going to yeah. say, yeah. see, because of, uh, in a large part because of that, and I'm going to be honest, I 
fucking hate that song. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would never listen to it. So bad, skip that track all the time. There was that pixie image that she had. That it was a big part of Bjork, this kooky, eccentric, wacky little like lady, and even like big time sensuality. You know, running back and forward in that famous video in the truck, and like it was all like very non-threatening. I mean, certainly compared to what she does now, quite uh, tame. But she seemed to in '97, and she did homogenic. When she did homogenic, that all kind of went out the window. Well, I think she she had debut. Which was taken seriously, but it was quite a light album. And then Post was the one that got famous, sold fuckloads. But people certainly saw her as that sort of kitschy thing mm-hmm. and pixie-like. And she obviously felt, people aren't taking me seriously. I'm going to fucking produce and get other people to help me produce an unbelievable electronic record. It's interesting though, right? So we're homogenic and I, I picked up this much. So um, in 96, on the 12th of September, mm-hmm. um, she was sent a letter bomb uh, which was designed to spray acid on her mm-hmm. by a guy called Ricardo Lopez who was a, a super fan, a stalker, an obsessive. Um, the police intercepted it and then found 22 hours of this guy's like home shot video of himself ranting about Bjork and about yeah. her relationship with Goldie and culminated with the guy shooting himself. And I think it seems like, uh, I mean, she, she she was quite restrained in what she said about that after it, it transpired. Yeah. But it does also seem that she, she moved from London to Spain at yeah. that time and seemed to kind of withdraw a bit. And you can only imagine that that's a big part of that uh, withdrawal, literally and figuratively in terms of like from the mainstream yeah, I mean, um, was she could have gone down a route of being, you know, a fucking megastar yeah, if she but wanted the, to. I wonder in the significance of that incident, like because that was in '96 and '97 was uh, when Homogenic came out, and she seemed like she had made a conscious decision to sort of not pursue this mainstream thing, like to to retreat a little bit into her own world. And she did that musically with that album as well. I mean, it's pretty incredible to think about <laughs> the level of fanaticism that you can inspire I know, I in know. your fans where they're trying to send you an acid-spraying letter bomb. Yeah, that's terrifying. Prior to that, I mean, you're talking about her mainstream success. I, I didn't actually know this, but Bedtime Story from Madonna's album Bedtime Stories, Bjork yep. wrote it. Yeah. Which was wow. pretty incredible when you consider that mm-hmm. you're writing for Madonna at that point, and that's like your second record. Let's get unconscious And the um, homogenic as well. I think a big part of our change of perception was we've spoken about this guy before, Chris Cunningham, yeah. the director. We spoke about when the Portishead episode, who's yeah. a, a guy who's the artists he's worked with are notoriously credible and hip. Yeah. And even the fact they've worked with him is either a signifier that they are credible and hip. He lends them some of that. They lend him some of that. There's a reciprocal kind of coolness about people who work with that. And they did um, this very uh, iconic video. Uh, for All Is Full Of Love yep. featuring it's it's hard but it's a robot did you notice the, the style of that video I, I checked the chronology of it it is so blatant that the film iRobot oh, ripped, iRobot ripped totally ripped that the off the aesthetic of yeah, that yeah absolutely because like, that came out in 2004 yeah and yeah, I yeah. was like 
man, that, that can't be a coincidence. And I looked at it and like... That, yeah, they're, that... exactly, they're pretty much the same robot. It's fucking mad. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> they released that Chris Cunningham video on DVD yeah. on its own single as a, as a video in 1998, 1999, something like that. Yeah. Uh, iRobot, five years later, has almost identical aesthetics on there. But, I mean, there's always been a... There's always been a tradition of sort of pilfering the best music videos for ideas mm-hmm. for movies and adverts. And Bjork has always seen music videos as a very important part of her work. Yeah. And aesthetics overall, like just the look of her and that all of her albums. I think like what Bjork does really well is that you can see every single one of her albums as what she is at that point of her life and a reflection of like the previous few years. And that is always reflected in the the imagery and the aesthetic of the record as well. You know, so Post has this sort of playful pink album cover and it's like, I'm out, I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I want. And then Homogenic, she's got this, you know, geisha-like stare coming out and I'm going to be like, and the record is a really sort of serious electronic record. And it's been, you know, it's been voted as like, you know, one of the top electronic albums of all time. It's always up there in like best records of the decade, things like that. Debut's credited as well as being like first introduction of pure electro into the mainstream of pop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then what then came after this, you know, four years later, is Vespertine, which is this much more subtle, much more delicate Bjork. You know, the the aesthetic is, it's black and white. It's... um, Someone is in love. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The record celebrates the sort of fragility of love. And Bjork has obviously been through a fuckload since 1997 in that that, um, record. Mm -hmm. Not missing out the fact that she's... um, done a film where she's you know one best actress yeah at, yeah she at, was Lars von Trier cast her in a Dance on the Dark because she was originally doing the score and yeah. then he wanted the main mm-hmm. actress Selma yeah. to be played by the person doing the score so she did it won the best actress at Cannes won the Palme d'Or as well that yeah. film Selma songs and, and that's the one you know she was still paparazzi famous at that point because you know she came out with the the swan dress the at the Academy Dwarks cover as well, yeah, and you know laid the eggs down the red carpet. Yeah, so you know she was still and in the pa- newspapers then. Oh, look at Bjork, isn't she funny? Because like mainstream are four years behind the fact that she's actually a credible artist. Mm-hmm. Um, that that swan dress is on the cover of Espartina yeah, as well. It's hard yeah, to make yeah. it out, but it's the same. It's the same dress. Yeah. So this record is celebrating the fact that she's in love uh, with um, Matthew Barney. Matthew Barney, yeah, New York conceptual visual artist. But also, as we've found out now, at the time, people had said that she'd had a difficult time working with Lars von Trier, like many people do. But she said it was so hard she would never act again. Yes, yeah, so she's never acted. She, you know, she. Won't, have you have you seen Dance in the Dark? That film. It's, it's, it's harrowing. It's harrowing is the exact word. But she is fucking incredible in it. Yeah, she's you know, great. She's amazing. She would be an amazing actress, but she's never gone back to it. Do you know she turned down uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg's role in Signs of Sleep? She was there because choice. Michelle Gondry's. Yeah. you know, worked with Bjork. Yeah, he's he's done a bunch of videos for her and he wanted her to play that role. Interesting. Um, it's fascinating to think about that film yeah. with, with her in that role. Yeah. She also, <laughs> she apparently um, turned down a chance to sing a, a sort of Gollum song in The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, she was asked to sing it. It's really interesting. This record comes after Dancing in the Dark. I mean, that's a that's a hard that's a hard watch for film. It's a it's a brutal film. Yeah. And this this record is like a big warm hug. Yeah. And know? like, but she, I remember she said that like doing Selma songs and doing that film was like her day job, and then this was her night job. So I feel like this was her escape mm-hmm. from that fucking harrowing ordeal. You know, making the movie, but also being that character, having to deal with that guy, having to deal with Lars von Trier, who yeah. notoriously. Who, and she's come out recently and said, you know, that he's a, a proper arsehole, you know, 
a mm. Me Too type cunt. Yeah. Um. So you know she's dealing with a lot of shit, and then also the fact that she's escaping from that, and then try to figure out, fuck, I'm totally in love, and I've you know probably been in love before, but how do I you know I know that being in love probably leads to pain and horror and shit and everything. So yeah. it's like. That's what this record to me is full of. Yeah, it's it's, it's clearly romantic. I mean, it's mm-hmm. clearly like it doesn't it doesn't even hide it. Some of the some of the lyrics are so blatantly intimate. I, I love him. I love him. Yeah, that. <laughs> but, there's, there's that. But there's also like the, the, the is it cocoon with the, all the, yeah. the the chat of like waking up and he's still inside me. Yeah, which has me too connotations, I guess. But. <laughs> Hi folks, uh, unfortunately this is that awkward moment where I have to kind of hold out my little cup and shake it at you and beg for some spare change so we can uh, keep funding the podcast. As you may have heard, David was wearing some very short shorts at the last session and it turns out that was because he had to hitchhike to the studio. My car has been in the garage for six months because I can't afford to fucking pay for it. But goddamn, your knees are picking up a tan. Well yeah, that's true. So, <laughs> so if we can just make David that little bit safer by helping him get that car fixed. It is a Volvo, so it's very safe. Stopping him climbing into cabs with uh, salivating truck drivers. That would be fantastic. Whatever you can afford is appreciated. A monthly donation would be great. You'll get some of our excellent bonus content, which, frankly, is probably better than our normal content, (laughs) (laughs) and doesn't make apologies for being over long. So, unsungpod.net forward slash donate. Thanks very much. Keep it safe. But uh, like the, the videos as well for the album were a lot more erotic. Uh, well, a lot more Cocoon, it, the video for Cocoon, you know, has her having sex in it. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, computer-generated imagery, you know, muffles it up a bit or whatever. Yeah, but they, they, they then, weren't able to show it on MTV at the time. Yeah, which exactly. And then, and then at the end, it's all about, you know, this red the, fabric the coming, coming out, out of her, her nipples, nipples yeah. which then cocoons her. And it's, you know, she's sort of letting herself be enveloped by, I don't know, love. And then just letting herself fuck off with it. Um, <laughs> in a very poetic way, that's how I put it. You know, you know. Regardless, um, though, of the fact that it was definitely a slightly more niche direction and a more erotic and adult direction. At the time, you know, this was the fastest selling album of all time. Really? <laughs> like, I didn't know that. Her, like, two, mil- two million copies by the end of the year. And it tailed off, obviously, quite substantially. But yeah. So we're kind of at that point of. It's interesting because there's no singles on it, really. That's the thing. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, there's. I think Pagan Poetry is probably the one I know I recognize the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's a, still like a. You know, it's like a weird electronic, yeah. you know, glitchy thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. There's no pop songs that. on this record at all. Um, yeah. It's probably a good point for to say, given that it did sell so much, I think it's still relevant that we highlight this album because when you then look back through the kind of listicles of, you know, Bjork's mm. catalogue, this is almost always mid-table. It's almost always somewhat overlooked, you know, so yeah. the most obvious ones are like Stereo Gum who do this thing quite a lot where they look at the back catalogue of an artist and, you know, rank it. Yeah, this this tends to finish in the, the body, in the centre. The first three are always up there. Biophilia is always up there. And then, yeah, this sort of gets passed over. So, yeah, sales figures notwithstanding, it's an album that probably deserves a little bit of 
closer examination. It's it's definitely of her stuff. Mm-hmm. Probably the one I enjoy listening to the most. Yeah, as someone that's a passive Bjork consumer, I think she's got such an incredible body of work that I love making playlists up and like best of. And this album doesn't necessarily have songs that like stand out that you want to put onto that like best of sitting in the car and go listen to Bjork for 20 tracks. But it's the album to me I go and just listen to from start to end and just fucking love like if I'm, you know, sitting with my headphones driving on, you know, on a on a bus or on a train or something, I just want to like just listen to an album. You can't dip into it. You've got to you've yeah. got to go on a journey with it. Yeah. Which I which I appreciated a lot about it. And that's that's kind of how the first time I heard it was actually I'd loaded it on my iPod for a big long bus journey back home to the Highlands and I was you know, driving up the A9 on my own, looking out a window. Bonnie drive. It's a Bonnie drive, but not when you do it 30 times a year. But <laughs> uh, And it something, you know, obviously, you know, echoes of the fucking Icelandic landscapes and there's something about, she's very at one with nature. And in fact, on this record, she was, she said, you know, she was really interested in like micro beats and natural sounds, you know, things like sound of ice breaking and, glass cracking and stuff it like that and that's recording what, type stuff yeah, yeah which gives this record you know the, the producers that worked on it um matt moss and is it dj yeah Thomas matt moss Kirk, are this duo Knack. that do really really sort of ambient and weird things yeah, yeah and yeah it just lends a really sort of beautiful very organic build to the whole record foundation thomas knack or thomas knack am i just being stupid there <laughs> <laughs> thomas knack knack um and there's, there's a, a a harpist as well, Zena Parkins. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff in it that's quite quite. And lush. An, an interesting thing that I only read about for today was um, that she deliberately put a lot of instruments like harpsichord and harp and stuff like that uh, on this record because she was kind of she didn't want people to download it in a like and not appreciate it on their computers, which is weird and very of its time because like she expecting people to just download it and then listen on their little shitty. I think she was. She want, yeah, so she wanted people to like appreciate it on a on a record and listen to it in a good, you know, sound system and it's as a piece of art. Which is coincidentally more expensive. Well, yeah. <laughs> but was it also like one of the reasons but that was chosen? But you could buy that. music online then. So, you know, she was in her own way Metallica-ing it, <laughs> but in a much Being more a artistic way. <laughs> Being a snob, yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny that she approached it that way and then with Madilla in 2004 stripped everything right back to at one point saying it was going to be just vocals yeah um it did end up eventually with some sequencing and a couple, so, instru- a couple of instruments but it's very sparse yeah Byron men, Byron men, oh um she had like razel and Mike yeah. Patton and a, a throat singer called was it Tanya Tigat Tig Tigak yeah. It's had some really esoteric people on there mm-hmm. for for someone as commercially successful yeah. as Bjork and to try and construct an album with that kind of and then challenge and then after it. that she did Volta, which <laughs> was basically the exact opposite. It was like everything thrown in, and it was huge and colourful. It was Timber, Timberland worked on that one, didn't it? Yeah, and it's probably a lot of people's least favourite 
It was the I first think. one to go top ten in the USA. Yeah, because it, mm. it, it came out with like a big pop track, and she, I think it felt like she was going to give it another go of just being like, "I'm I'm a pop pop artist again. I'll do I can do straightforward things," and um, which she's good at. But uh, that's not a record I really ever go back to compared to the no. rest. Um, yeah, she toured that record for eighteen months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then after that, she did Biophilia, which is fucking an incredible record. It's amazing, isn't it? Toured yeah. by Ophelia for two years. Oh, man. I mean, that is... But, like, you run she, it, also, run it she created places. her own, like, instruments. She invented her own instruments for that record. And then she's got, like, yeah, her are, own children's choir that she put together and still now exists in the Iceland Biophilia and stuff The like Biophilia thing that. is fascinating as well because she released the tracks individually as different apps where people yeah. could, like, play the app and unlock create the, song. the song, basically. Yeah. But then within that, she'd also created like a learning package that would educate children. Yeah, it's part of the curriculum now in Iceland. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, would, it would educate children on the crossover between music and science yeah. and, you know, intervals and maths. And yes. yeah. Jesus, man, that's, that's a she's, concept that I have. She's fucking man. cool. <laughs> I, told, I told somebody in my work about it and I was playing it yesterday on her yeah. iPad and it was just like, it's so weird. Man, because she is totally on the zeitgeist as well. That was around the time when I was into dubstep and like <laughs> drum and bass. <laughs> Uh, and then like she came out and like had like some total breakbeat stuff on that record and it sounded better than like most producers that have done it before and it had like some sort of venetian venetian snare type breaks on it and stuff like that like yeah just every record she's like pushes the boundary in some way and like does something really fucking interesting she had some fun times just prior to that as well i remember remember the there's a famous photo kicks about of York attacking a photographer in New Zealand and yeah. she ripped his shirt off his back or Aye. ripped his shirt apart because he'd photographed her and she was just so sick of like being in her space being invaded as part of that enormous 18 month tour for the previous album for Volta she was in China and with one of the songs called Declare Independence she finished it by shouting Tibet Tibet yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah <fuck laughs> the, Chinese, the Chinese government's response was uh, she has hurt her feelings. New <laughs> like, York has hurt my feelings. I'm sure, Tibet's gutted for you. Yeah, yeah, and obviously, then coming up to date, was it Volnacura and Utopia? I mean, how how do they compare to that? Because these are albums that I've not. Volnacura is really nice. It's, it's it's a slow, quite somber record. Like I really like it. There's not a huge amount comes out and captures you. Yeah, I, both those records to me are just her fucking experimenting a lot. Uh, where do they sit for you in terms of? Uh, I don't know. I think I think with Bjork records, you maybe have to let them bed in for a few years and like <laughs> you know work it out. Yeah. You know, much like I don't know, Mushagar or you know, a lot of records for me, I like look back on after a few years and then I can go, oh yeah, that's I want to listen to that again. Or you know, they're certainly they stand the test of time so far. Do you think she's but, still producing at as high a level as she was? Yeah, but I think she's just totally given up try to please anybody even though i don't think she ever tried to please anybody per se but like she's given up giving a fuck about anything really she just does exactly what she wants to do she doesn't need to sell records anymore and you can see that like basically since debut and post she sold consistently less and less records but she'll play to more and more people that want to go and see her yeah because she's increasingly legendary and her body of work is better yeah she's she's acquired a kind of uh, uh an, an inertia that is just like it allows her to just by sheer strength of reputation, yeah. just continue to pick up people based on our credibility. Yeah, exactly. Like, like Prince as well. 
It's the exact same for him. Yeah, like she's, like, she's getting rid of the, the the casual listeners, but she's building her fan base. She does join like a stable of artists in that sense. I do think like Nick Cave, Tom Waits, PJ Harvey, yeah. Bjork. These are all like people that musically are not straight down the line. They're not doing Backstreet Boys, but they have done so much and it's such a high level and uh, are dabbled so, with the mainstream. Yeah, exactly. And they, they've got to a point where they just consistently gather and gather and they're always seems like they're always going to be held in reasonably high esteem i mean in, in terms of like vespertine itself as and i was obviously new to it when you told me that this was the one we were going to do so i mm. was really fresh as well yeah. which was also kind of useful the main tracks were what, hidden place pagan poetry and cocoon were the singles but they're not necessarily the ones that no and me. cocoon particularly isn't one that i I feel like this record has like beautiful tracks and then segues between tracks. Um, it's it's more about the full album, but like there are just parts on certain songs that fucking absolutely blow my mind. And the bit it's uh, on, it's not up to you. That was the sitting on the bus listening to this album the first time. The strings and come in. The strings come That's in. Amazing. And you know you've got all the little background vocals happening. There's just something about that, and I was like, "Holy fuck, this I is told so James Bond, but in it, yeah. like it's like pure. Ooh, it's so fragile, yeah. but so powerful at the same time." It's not up to you. It feels like every single part of this record is really, yeah, it's fragile. I can't think of any other words for that, but as a whole. It's just so fucking powerful. I really love that you know, the song An Echo of Stain has that creepy kind of wob. Yeah, wob, yeah, yeah. Wob. It's, it's quite eerie, but it's really like, I, I don't know why. It, it wasn't a particularly sweet song, but I just kept going back to that one. And again, coming at it with fresh ears, the one that I liked the most was the song Heirloom. I love Heirloom. Yeah, I think it, it comes in just at the right time as well because an echo, a strain, like it's really nice, but it's quite understated. And then Son of My Mouth is one of these tracks that critics of Bjork will say that she sometimes warbles a little bit or she gets lost. I don't necessarily agree, but I think if another track like Son of My Mouth followed, you'd be like, oh, I kind of want something different to happen. Mm-hmm. But when Heirloom comes in, it's got, you know, just that beat and that, that tempo to it. I, I actually, I love it balances the, the record so well. I love so the well. melody of Heirloom. It's, it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Because I think one of the reasons I've never engaged with Bjork in a more consistent way is because her choice of melody tends to leave me a little bit cold. Uh, she dilutes a lot of things or she, she, you know, she certainly doesn't have like a strong root when she goes to certain vocal transitions. And so I, yeah. I think sometimes I like things to be spelled out a bit clearer. And I find the melodies can be a little bit too hidden, a little bit too hard to grab hold of. Um, Certainly our last two records are like that. Yeah, whereas I felt with Heirloom, there was just enough of that. There was a nice balance. There are enough moments where you hear the root, you hear the melodic change, and it was just that little bit sweeter. I love her lyrics as well, you know, just about her sort of recurring dream of swallowing little lights. Like 
That's so fucking Bjork, isn't it? It's so Bjork. I mean, that's it. Like, she's a fucking, she's a verb. She's an adjective. She's like so beyond everything. You can describe things as, you know, that's very Bjork. Uh, yeah, she um, has she has got that same quality as Meshuggah in that sense where you're like, <laughs> my God, this music's a bit Bjork. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, I think, yeah, Heirloom like really captures this album and like that sense of a self-study and it's it's quite ethereal and surreal as well um but it's also like dealing with love and herself and her body and everything yeah it is very positive in that sense and it is it is kind of nice we've all been there i'm sure we all know the bitterness of love that doesn't work out yeah. but you also know the almost stupid optimism mm-hmm. yeah. and and, and i think she's aware of blissful that. happiness yeah, yeah. And she's just she's enjoying it like, it seems like there is definitely like god i'm giddy yeah i'm just but Write I mean, P- really. Pagan Poetry as well is a fu- is a, an amazing track for me. That's a lovely song. It is a um, lovely song. And I think with that track, well, obviously nobody else other than Bjork could have written this track or this album. But I also, I just don't think this could ever have been done by a male. I don't think a man could ever have written this record. I think it's a very, very female album in like a very, very positive way. I love him. I love him. I love him. I Pagan poetry maybe encapsulates that the best and like yeah, the bit where she's like, I love him, I love him, and then the backing vocals, she loves him, she loves him, and it's like a sort of I don't know. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine the male equivalent. Yeah, who knows? She wakes up and I'm still inside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you just could it couldn't no, be done, not, it would be so fucking not quite horrible. As touching, is it? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably important to highlight here as well. I don't necessarily think we're saying this is the best Bjork album. I think, I think it is, but yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> Why? Why do you think it is? I just think it's the one that perfectly encapsulates her. Because every single Bjork record encapsulates her at that time. And I think this is the one that best encapsulates Little that girl. time perfectly. But, and, oh, okay, so you think it's the most accurate representation of, of her, her at that time. And it's also the one that I think as a record fits all together the most organically. Yeah, I mean, I like um, it as a distillation of her as an artist. Although yeah. I do like the kind of slightly more industrial stuff that's on post. It draws elements from across or different things. You know, Medulla, for example, is far too far out in one direction. And it's yeah. not one direction, the band. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, it's nice as I a... I can really appreciate it. As a representation of that. Yeah. Um, I just think, I, I don't know if it necessarily works to say that it's objectively the best album. I do think our fans are pretty precious I, about that. What yeah. I would say is, I think in the context of Unsung, it definitely seems like the best proportional to its subsequent legacy. Yeah. It seems like it gets overlooked the most in terms of its quality versus its prominence in people's, you know, when people cite her albums. It's mm-hmm. like it's one that people are like, yeah, that, when I said we were doing that, people are like, that's a really good album. It's not the one I would maybe have chosen, but you're right, actually, it's brilliant. Yeah, because we could easily just chosen Homogenic yeah. um, and say, you know, what a fucking amazing record it is. But, you know, Tiny Mixtape said, Homogenic is one of the most groundbreaking albums of all time, an album that assuredly caused countless hearts to soar, and then it gets, like, named greatest of its decade, blah, blah, blah. Whereas this doesn't necessarily happen for Vespertine. Yeah, that's, that's it, I think. It's more that numerous Bjork albums, not even just Homogenic, are on numerous lists. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I feel this maybe deserves a place on the unsung list. Because it's not high enough yeah, on the other list. You know, it's 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 probably all too rarely on those kind of Mojo two hundred records to change your life. Yeah, kind of things. But in terms of a list of things that have been maybe somewhat overlooked because of the quality of the stuff around it, 
yeah then yeah I, th- I think it i think it merits inclusion so maybe i'd ask people if they do listen to the podcast before they vote <laughs> especially <laughs> this far into it consider that consider that so many of the other albums are actually included elsewhere and that's that's all well and good but that this one seems like it maybe gets a little bit of short shrift and i just yeah. think in the context of what we're doing it's probably quite eligible yeah so yeah and i, would, and I think if we're choosing a one record by one artist i think this is one that is the most bjork maybe as well that's true I don't, like as a person rather than a pop star even in her videos she's you know she's naked or she's sewn her wedding dress into her skin this album is her sort of stripped back from anything pop sensibilities or anything it's just her yeah i, I don't think I mean, it would be hard to argue that bjork is underrated as an artist i think bjork is hugely revered i think it's more relevant for us to say that this album itself is maybe somewhat underrated so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm behind it going cool well, I haven't heard a lot of Bjork, but I did really, really enjoy this record. Um, I like the way it made me feel. Yeah. It, it was... <laughs> so cute. I know, it's, it's nice, weird. but it's true, though, It's isn't weird, it? though. It doesn't make you, it makes you feel... It's uplifting, Yeah, I really... I fucking hate the way it made me feel. <laughs> but it's beautiful. Yeah. It's like, fuck off, Bjork. Stop singing about that shit. Just <laughs> Radiohead. And we hear love songs all the time, do you know what I mean? And, and there's nothing... None of it actually communicates what it what it might feel like this does that yeah and I appreciated that a lot about it you know and I think that's that's a rare thing to do only a great artist can can really do that I yeah think. there's a lot of uh, love songs or love albums that are just fucking vague ambiguities about how much I'd give up to be with you or whatever but this conveys that sense of urgency and fear and all these negative emotions that come with being in love that's the thing it, like it's it's not an album about love it's an album about being in love which is a totally different thing yeah exactly yeah. When you ultimately think about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, yeah. And it's also pretty shamelessly an album about acknowledging the naivety of it, especially mm. early yeah. on. It's self aware. Yeah. It's very self aware. Uh, anyway, yeah. So you should uh, go to uh, our Facebook group page. Uh, page. Oh, yeah, they don't have groups anymore, <laughs> do they? You could go, go to our Facebook page and uh, you should probably vote for this unless you feel so strongly that you want to send us uh, some acid in the post. <laughs> Because we chose the wrong Bjork album. Um, please don't send us us in the post. And next week, we are going to do Jupiter by Kevin for some yep. unfortunate reasons, albeit it's one that we've been intending to do for a while. But now's the time. I think that's fair. So, yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Bye. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.